Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Jeanette Taylor, President and CEO of the Women's Center for Advancement. In the show, Taylor talks about a lifelong commitment to working with marginalized youth, including founding a gang intervention and prevention program, and the work of the Women's Center for Advancement, supporting people experiencing sexual assault, domestic violence, and trafficking. Taylor also shares how this work has not been without her own personal loss and burnout, but how ambition and hopefulness for humanity spur her on. There's two types of people who are drawn to this work. It's either people who are survivors or it's people who are sort of like driven by trying to like change the world and make sure that everybody is okay. Listeners are advised that in the show, we reference domestic violence, sexual assault, and gun violence. Janet Taylor is a native of Omaha, Nebraska, and currently serves as the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Women's Center for Advancement. She is also the owner of Social Impact Outliers, a consulting firm working with businesses, universities, and nonprofits throughout the Midwest and South Florida on capacity building, leadership development, fundraising, and capital campaigns. Prior to returning to Omaha, she served as the CEO of the United Way in Kansas and ran an international nonprofit in Florida that built schools in developing nations. Taylor has long had a passion for working with marginalized youth in the community. Among many endeavors serving that passion, in 2009, she founded a community-based nonprofit, Impact One Community Connection a gang intervention and prevention program serving youth and young adults. Former Mayor Jim Suttle declared December 5th Jeanette Taylor Day for her work with youth development and community service. A quick note for listeners that I have, in a professional capacity unrelated to LIVES, worked with the Women's Centre for Advancement. Jeanette Taylor, welcome to LIVES. Hey Stuart, thank you for having me. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your childhood and what stands out from from your upbringing? Well, uh, I don't know if the beginning is as interesting as like the middle, but (laughs) in the beginning, so I am uh, all together. My parents have five children. Uh, I'm a twin. And so I always like grew up with a partner in crime. We were very mischievous. When I think about like my childhood, what I remember the most is always being outside like we were not playing video games and on social media. We were just always outside, always playing, always, you know, hanging out with friends and whatnot. Um, but at an early age, uh, my twin sister and I started playing basketball right before we turned five. So we were like, um, we were four turning five. And so we played basketball from that age all the way through high school. And I think that kind of shaped me more than anything, like just being in sports. How so? I don't know. It was just something that I was just naturally good at. And then I was super serious about it. So eventually I was the team captain for many years. And then I learned a lesson because I was so serious about like people doing the exercises and the routines right. Uh, I was kind of hard on the folks trying to motivate them. And for a while, like none of them liked me for about maybe a couple months there. I was like, oh, this is not working because we were at a league at the Salvation Army on 24th and Pratt. Um, and so I started being more goofy and just joking around, not taking it serious. And the coach took the title of captain from me. And I learned that lesson. Like you, you, you have a job to do and you just need to focus on that. But you also need to be able to balance it and like motivate the team without being too like hard on them. So that was a lesson I learned when I was probably, I think I was about 12 and it hurt my little ego, but yeah, I learned a lot of lessons in basketball, but that's probably one of the biggest ones, how to balance like that leadership role and then helping your team. So you have an interesting family dynamic. Uh, What were the relationships like then between you and your twin, but then you have these other siblings too, and then also your parents and probably an extended family too. (laughs) <laughs> the the funniest thing about it is I just remember people always saying they never referred to us by our names. It was the tall twin or the short twin. And I'm like, oh, the short twin. Or the, so that was one funny thing about it. 
Uh, I have two brothers and two sisters. So me and my twin sister, obviously, we're a lot closer and we're all like three years apart. So we were just a lot closer uh, than my other siblings. And I'm a lot, it's odd now, but I'm a lot closer now to my little brother who's, we're eight years apart. But me and my other siblings are all three years apart. So it's it was, it was okay. It was an interesting dynamic. Um, I was the youngest for a while, technically. But I, I do remember the other thing is uh, in school, there was always this conversation about how odd it was that there were two black twins. Like it was an anomaly. And I'm like, pretty sure there's black twins all over the world. <laughs> but that was always a thing uh, in every school that we went to. And I, I remember my sister being, my older sister was super fashionable. Like she would always have the cute clothes and all this stuff. And me and my twin sister would have to dress exactly the same all the time. Like no, there was no individuality. <laughs> and we don't even look alike. We're just like, we just look like two sisters who were dressed alike. But those are some of the things that I remember. Um, and then thinking back, I think being a twin was the biggest thing of like our place in the world when we were little. Our family itself has a bunch of twins. We have probably maybe six sets of twins. And I have a cousin who has um, his um, partner is going to deliver twins very soon. So, yeah. This is a totally random digression, but mm -hmm. were you sort of surprised when you had Erica that you were just having one child? Not twins? <laughs> I was happy that it was just one. Uh, <laughs> truthfully, it's. Twins are hard. Um, I just remember not even like I couldn't fathom like trying to raise two twins. But when me and my sister, I just remember us always getting in trouble. Um, I was the quiet. There's always a quiet twin and a loud one. So I'm the quiet twin, believe it or not. And my sister is very loud and very seen. And I'm always quiet and kind of in the background. I remember we were. Going to kindergarten, we have our birthdays are weird. We were born in September, so they let us start school when we were four. We had to pass some tests, so we were able to start school when we were four. I think my mom just wanted us out of the house. Um, but I remember they, they said, do you guys want to be in the same room or different classrooms? And I was like, I want to be in a different classroom. And I don't know why I did it. I'm glad I did because <laughs> I don't think we would have learned anything in kindergarten. Uh, but we were just in different rooms, and I just remember um, – my twin sister always getting in trouble. I went outside one day and she was like sitting up against the wall crying like really hard. And I was like, what, you know, what's happening? What's going on? And she was like, Miss Anderson said, I can't leave. I have to sit here and I can't play. And I'm like, this is recess. Like, of course you have to play. She's like, no, she said I'll get in trouble. And I'm like, no, we're done. I was like, let's go. And I took her. I remember grabbing her hand and we just walked home. And I remember vividly remember my mom's face coming through the door. <laughs> like, why are you? Like, why are you here? And so I just, I always remember, um, even though she was older than me, I always remember, like, taking charge. Like, uh, we're not doing this. Let's go. Um, and I think that maybe kept us out of trouble, too. But I couldn't imagine having two two twins. We were little kids walking from four years old. We left Lothrop. I grabbed her hand, and we walked from Lothrop to 24th and Pratt, which is quite a distance for two four-year-olds. Um, so needless to say, my mom went back to the school, had some choice words for the administration and we survived, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. You went to college of St. Mary and you also studied as well at Creighton and you studied business and leadership at college of St. Mary. And you went on to also earn a master's of science in negotiation and dispute resolution at Creighton. And I'm curious about why you decided to pursue those fields of study? Well, I didn't, actually. I always tell people I live my life in reverse because um, I, I had my daughter uh, when I was 17, like right out of high school. Like right after I graduated, I had my daughter. I was right before my 18th birthday. I had a scholarship, and I forfeited the scholarship because in my mind you couldn't go to school if you were having a kid. Like, And this is what happens when you don't have, like, parents with the wherewithal to say, no, you can do all these things. But I waited until my daughter was old enough to go to school before I went to college. Um, and I was <laughs> going to study uh, computer science because uh, at the time that was the thing. It was like all about Bill Gates and whatever. And so originally I started studying computer science. 
I ended up in the business uh, cohort at College of St. Mary because some lady came to my job and she did a presentation like, oh, you can get your degree with this. It was right when accelerated programs started. She's like, 60 Saturdays. You just come to school from 8 to 5 on Saturday for 60 weeks. And I'm like, oh, that's easy. And that's what I did. And it, <laughs> just because. And I was like, I just want to get this over with. And so I totally shifted um, and did that and then uh, ended up doing my first master's at College of St. Mary also in business and then went to Creighton and did the other master's for negotiation and dispute resolution. I really, as I was like growing up, I guess, um, more than anything, I wanted to be like a civil rights attorney and it just never happened. And I don't know why I wanted that. I just remember being impacted by a lot of seeing a lot of things when I was younger and just knowing like, you, you know, injustice when you live in it. And so I, I just always wanted to do something that could change how this world is, I guess. Your long form bio has this statement. It says that your personal life experiences have aided you in serving diverse groups and have positioned you to be the perfect advocate for marginalized people in the community. So what were some of those experiences then that shaped how you did see the world? At an early age, like the main thing was just seeing the disparities between black and white people. When I was younger, I remember um, <laughs> the first time I was called the N-word, um, I was probably in first grade. I remember going to visit my aunt um, in Michigan, playing basketball, and this kid, this little, it was a young white boy, he got mad because me and my twin sister, we beat him. And I remember him trying to spit on me. And I don't know if you need to edit this out, but he 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 tried to spit on me and uh, it did not end well for him. <laughs> I got very angry at that. But I just remember, I think seeing like the injustices between black and white people was very, I mean, that was evident. And then seeing like the disparities between men and women was another thing. Having people judge you off of stereotypes and not actually getting to know you, being afraid to go into certain rooms or events or something that's outside of the norm because culturally it's not what we do. I remember when I first started uh, traveling a lot, my mom literally thought I was going to get murdered. I was going to, I think I was going to like Argentina or something. And she was like, oh my God. Like, and she made this big deal about it. Like I would be murdered just going there. It's a big world out there. But when you're young, you... Like, I never imagined any, like, the way my life is now, I never imagined it would turn out this way. And, you know, working with uh, gang members, I've seen how those kids are, like, marginalized and isolated into certain neighborhoods. Um, people kind of disregard them. And then their quote-unquote gangs are really just, like, substitute families for them. It's a place where they can go and feel like they have, like, a brotherhood or a sisterhood or whatever. Not saying like that the activity is okay, but just knowing and understanding what it's like to want to be a part of something when so often you're told you can't be a part of something. Even in school, like I, I read a lot. <laughs> I think I'm kind of smart, um, but I, I, I remember being in school and certain kids being offered certain classes and I wouldn't be offered those same classes or they would have access to certain clubs, which would obviously, which we don't know this at the time, but it helps them to get into certain colleges and things like that. So you, you notice those things um, very, very early if you're on the other side of it, I think. I'm always on the other side, so that's how I'm able to pick up on these things. And I think as I got older, I have access to lots of other sides, and so I'm able to like call things out um, when other people feel uncomfortable doing that because it's my experience. So, so there's this drive to work with what you've described as marginalized youth in the community. And so one example of that was you founding the organization Impact One Community Connection, which is that gang intervention and prevention program. What was it that was at that time catalyzing you to actually set up and structure this organization? Uh, I witnessed a murder. Two o'clock in the afternoon. When it happened, I was uh, shocked. There were two people that were shot inside of a convenience store. And it was when I was, at the time, I was working for the mayor's office. Um, and I was at this convenience store, of 42nd and Ames, and I witnessed a murder uh, in broad daylight. 
I had already been um, wanting for a couple, maybe two years or so prior to starting a nonprofit, but I witnessed two young men be shot. And I vividly remember one of the kids, he, he was alive, he was talking. And I remember me and my, at the time, me and my boyfriend were standing there. I'm like, oh, you're going to be okay. And he wasn't okay. He died. And the other kid, we thought he had um, passed away. But he he was paralyzed, so he wasn't moving. We didn't know that at the time. But I think witnessing that kind of enraged me because I'm like, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and this kid, these two uh, young men were were shot. That is not something that you expect to see. Um, It's not normal. And all I remember is, and not all I remember, I remember everything that happened that day. But shortly after, his sister came down to the store, and the police had all of the people who were witnesses in the middle of the parking lot. And I just remember this lady yelling and screaming, is that my brother, is that my brother? I think knowing that somebody's brother, that somebody's child, is one, one thing that kind of put a fire under me to try to quickly get something started. And it happened just because things kind of lined up. I was able to start the nonprofit. So I think there are two threads here. One is, what is the impact of that on you? Because these aren't everyday circumstances, nor should we think of them as everyday. And yet at the same time, you're also doing something proactive, like you're actually running this organization. So perhaps first, let's talk about what the organization did, and then we can talk about you know its outcomes. Yeah. So it was like a gang intervention and prevention organization that was modeled after Ceasefire out of Chicago. So we, primarily, it was just creating other opportunities for young people. So we had uh, an in-school program where we'd have staff go out and work in the schools with kids who were either gang involved or heading down that path. And then we also had like a summer jobs program where kids would have employment in the summer and it would keep them off the streets and engaged in other things. We ended up doing a lot of case management after with some of the tougher kids. And when I say kids, these could they could be anywhere like in their 20s. They're all kids to me, but <laughs> they were younger So a lot of them, we would be helping them get housing, helping them uh, get jobs, like sustainable jobs after the summer jobs program, helping them just kind of manage their lives and try to get on the right track. You know, quite often it's easy to look down on somebody when you're not totally embracing what their experience is. If you grow up in a a household that's lower income, you don't have a lot of access to a bunch of things, you are limited in how you can grow. And there was a I'm going to kill this quote, but <laughs> there was a quote by um, Muhammad Yunus where he was talking about like the bonsai tree. The actual tree is it's, it's this big, beautiful tree, right? And it grows out in the forest. But if you put it in a small container, which is what they do to create the bonsai, it can't grow, right? It's small. Same seed, same tree, but it's in this really short, limited environment, and that's why it doesn't grow big. And so when I think about People like me, where I came from, people who are always like on the margins and kind of disregarded by society, that's what I think of. They're bonsais that were put into this small environment. They can't, they can't grow. It's, I think it's an issue with society and not the people, really. I've heard you describe your role as a sort of 24-7 job that required you to be a diplomat, social worker, a teacher, confident, big sister, what was the nature of your role? Sort of what did a week look like for you as the founder and ED of that organization? It literally could be anything. Like you think it's like a youth program, like an after school program or summer jobs program. It's easy. But like I remember thinking like that I was like, we're just killing it. Like we had all these kids in these programs, they were doing great. And I remember the first kid that I lost, this kid was murdered and I was like, Well well damn, like we're failing. Because you don't look at, like, oh, there's 300 kids that are thriving. Like, literally a kid was murdered, and it's one of your kids. So, like, now what do you do? So when I say it's 24-7, it's because we, at the time, we had an MOU with the the hospitals. So if someone came in for, like, a trauma call, if it's an intentional wound victim, if they're shot, they would call us and we would go to the ERs to do, um, basically to support the families and then try to do any intervention so that the kids wouldn't go out and try to retaliate. And so that's the, where the 24-7 part comes in. And we had a great team. We had a great system put together, like an on-call system for that. 
But it, it seemed like it was just nonstop all the time. You're always working, even when you're like going to the grocery store. I remember, I vividly remember this guy following me and my daughter around the store, and I was so paranoid. Like, and then he walked up to some lady, and I remember them chatting about. He said, "Oh, that was a lady that was on the news," and he was talking about this the summer jobs program. So I was like, "Oh, okay." And so then I, I, I approached them and we had a conversation, but it, it is 24-7 all the time. Um, and that was super exhausting. But at the time, I feel like it was necessary. And I do feel like we had a great team and we all did really well with what we had at the time working with those kids. So I feel like some of the programs that you instituted, because you founded this back in 2009, so it's, it's quite a while ago, many of the programs or the seeds you planted continue to flourish. Yeah. But you did choose to step away at, at some uh, point. I don't think I chose it. I think that decision was made for me. Uh, so it was crazy summer in 2012. What happened was my one of my cousins was shot and, and murdered uh, downtown near the Jean Leahy Mall in the summer. And it was right during uh, College World Series. And it was all this crazy thing, like it was all in the news and um, they were talking about trying to implement a curfew and all this stuff. And it, it, that didn't come to fruition, but it was just a lot around it. One of my cousins was murdered and then about 40 days later, another cousin who I was really, really close to, he had been shot like November of the previous year and he passed away on August 28th of 2012. And I remember that day because I, when it happened, I left the hospital, went to my office. We had a board meeting and I resigned that night. Um, I think what sort of pushed me to do that when I say the decision was made for me, the reason that I had to resign, both of my cousins, two cousins were basically dead within 40 days roughly. And it was at the hands of kids that I worked with. Like some of the kids that came in and they were working in the summer program, they were older. So that was just a hard pill to swallow. And again, it's like, it doesn't matter if you have, at this point, we had worked with like thousands of kids, but those two impacted me enough to where it was time to go. So I feel like, I don't know, maybe if, if that wouldn't have happened, maybe I would still be there, but it was too much. So I left. It sounds deeply traumatic and I'm sorry for those experiences. How did you gather yourself back? It's interesting. So my younger cousin, when he was murdered, we weren't close at all. Like he was 18. Like I would see him very sporadically. And then my, the other cousin, we were really, really close. He was like my brother. So that, I think that impacted me the most when he passed. And it was at that time I left Impact One and I did a bunch of things. So I left Impact One, but I was still kind of like helping out, like raising money and doing all these things until they could find somebody to replace me. And then I went to law school full-time. I left law school, went to Iowa City, and ran a nonprofit there for a while. And then had to come back here to help out a friend who, another traumatic thing, she was um, fighting terminal cancer diagnosis. So it was just when you're traumatized or you're dealing with trauma, you do have to take a step back. I think people want you to always push forward, which I don't think is healthy. So subsequently my friend with cancer died and when she died I was just like peace I'm out and I left <laughs> at the time I was the CEO of the United Way down in Kansas Lawrence Kansas and I left and I went to the beach literally I was just like I'm out and I moved to Florida I didn't know anybody I was just like there's a beach there that's where I'm going and so I was there for a couple of years and then ended up back here somehow <laughs> So, so I am going to get to your role at the WCA, but um, you know you're you're laughing, um, but it's a little tongue in cheek because you know two years on a beach in Florida sounds wonderful if you phrase it just like two years on a beach in Florida, but you've described all all of this trauma. You you were so burnt mm-hmm. out. Oh yeah. You know it wasn't just two years on a beach in Florida. It was it was a couple of years of I don't know. I'm putting words in your mouth here, but putting the pieces of you back together again so that you could keep moving forward. So I'm, I'm curious about that two-year period. Yeah, it was, uh, it was respite. <laughs> For real, like, I, I feel like, so the, the thing is, I actually am an introvert, so I like being alone. 
most people don't believe that. They think I'm an extrovert, but I'm not. I have to be because of like the jobs or whatever. But <laughs> I went to the beach. <laughs> I went to the beach every day. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that literally every day. So even if it was raining, I would made a point to go to the beach. I would try to in the morning, I would drive to the beach and I would meditate and then I would drive to work because uh, I, I lived in Boca. But I, I worked in Delray, so it was like a 15-minute drive. So I would go there, meditate, take it all in, and then go to work. And then when I would come home, I would do the same thing if I had time. And then every Saturday and Sunday, I would drive up the A1A, which is the old interstate that nobody uses because it's beautiful, because why not? So put a lot of miles on my car, but I've always had a great therapist. And me going to Florida was my, my true unplug, which a lot of people don't do. And so I think it was a good thing for me to do. It was healthy. I mean, because you think about it, you don't expect like people around you, especially somebody that's 35 years old to die of cancer. And so trying to process all that and then everything else that happened before was just a lot. So I just kind of took my ball and I went home and then <laughs> ended up back here. <laughs> but it was it was a good time. I'm not I mean. It was a good time to unplug and rest and get back to myself, I think. The role that you currently occupy is as the leader of the Women's Center for Advancement. And you began that role, and we can talk about this in a second, but you began that role in September of 2020. For people that are unfamiliar with that organization, would, would you mind just sharing a little bit about what is the Women's Center for Advancement and what, what does it do? Yeah, uh, so the Women's Center for Advancement, the WCA, primarily the focus is on uh, domestic violence um, and sexual assault. Um, we also work with human tra trafficking victims um, and then survivors, like people who have been stalked, things of that nature. Originally, the organization was a part of the YWCA, and then in 2011, it transitioned to the WCA, Women's Center for Advancement. So the primary focus is helping survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. What do you think would surprise people listening about the organization or the work that it does? Everything. <laughs> it's interesting. I, you know, I've had donors make comments or ask questions about our clients, and the assumption is that they're always people of color who are in poverty. That's like the comments that they make and I'm like actually and then I like give them our statistics which it's problematic and I'll get to that in a second but I think the most surprising thing is that it impacts everyone like we it's called the women's center for advancement but we serve all people all gender identities obviously there typically there's more women who are impacted it's one out of four women and then one out of seven men who are impacted by DV so people are always surprised that it's everyone and not just a certain stereotype group. I think people always think that our clients are in a certain sort of tax bracket. Uh, they can't believe that wealthy people are abused and all these other things. Um, one of the things that's problematic, there's a lot of research behind it nationally. It's a real thing. People of color have less access to support services and resources when they're trying to get out of a situation of domestic violence or human trafficking. And so we've been really intentional about trying to shift that so people feel welcomed when they come to the WCA. There are two things, actually, that literally, like, shocked me to my core. One, just the brutality of abusers. Um, when you work at a place like that, you start to get a lot of text messages from friends and people who are friends of friends. So you get pictures of things that you that are kind of like burned into your brain. Um, I remember one of my friends was trying to get some assistance for someone that she knew, and she sent me a picture of a, a kid that was was burned, with like had to be like grease or cooking grease or something uh, by the abuser, and obviously I had to report it, it's the whole thing. So that was one thing, like just the brutality of people who are abusers is horrible. And then one misconception I had was about human trafficking. Like, you know, I thought it was kind of like what you see in the movies. Some girl gets kidnapped out of a shopping mall or something like that. I just remember being shocked because there was a an incident where it was actually a young man who was trafficked. And the 
the things surrounding it, like he was brought here to this country under false pretenses. And so it just, it opens your eyes up to lots of things that we don't really understand until we, we see it and we're in it. You mentioned that possibly some of the data was problematic and I'm wondering what, what that means. Well, um, if you are a person of color, you are less likely to be believed when you call the cops and you tell them this is what's happening, it's less likely that you're believed as far as like the situation and what is actually occurring. And then when you go to organizations, you're less likely to have access to those resources. We were talking earlier about how I can identify something and because of my own experiences or I'm like, oh, this is wrong. We're going to change it. I remember getting to this organization and there was a ban and bar book of people who were banned from coming into the building for whatever reason, like they came there and, you know, got into it with staff or whatever. But I remember going through this book and like everybody in the damn book looked like me. I'm like, wait a minute. It was like all these, it was primarily like black women in this book. And I'm like, what, you know, what is this about? And they were like, oh, well, this person, they were working with somebody that got upset. Like, of course they got upset if you think about what they went through. And the same response from somebody who was like maybe a white woman, like nothing would happen. I remember watching a video where a white woman tore some artwork off the wall and nothing happened. They gave her like time to collect herself. And so like I think that unconscious bias comes in quite a bit. And so that's why people of color are not always believed necessarily right away when they're being having an interaction with law enforcement or they have challenges um, coming to organizations, getting service. I just remember when I was work, I was actually working at Impact One. I remember sending people to the, the organization and they didn't get help. And so I was like, we just stopped sending people there. So I, I do feel like maybe it was by design actually being there now that we can change that so everybody has access. And it's not just the unconscious bias is we're at least acknowledging it and making sure that people still have access to everything else. What does it look like in terms of the process for someone that is able to connect with you from the you know, moment of contact? How, how do you help them through a system which I would imagine is fraught not only with stereotypes and bias, but also the trauma that you've just described? Yeah, um, it's different entry points. Um, obviously, like a person can self-identify and walk in off the street and say, we need help. This is what I'm dealing with. Or like quite often we get calls from the hospitals or the police department where they'll notify us if it's someone who's um, a survivor of domestic violence or someone who is a survivor of sexual assault. And we will send advocates to go meet them at the hospital. Um, and then they come in and they do, they immediately create like a safety plan for them. And then they work with them to set them up if they need therapy, they'll do that. We have all these things in-house therapy protection orders and things like that are handled um, internally also. We have a legal team that represents our clients if they need to get a divorce, work on child custody, those types of things. Immigration issues, because a lot of times immigration is held over people's head. They're being abused. Their abuser will say, you know, you're here and I can report you to ICE. And so that's held over people's head. So our we have a great team of people that literally it's like a full service program where they help just make sure you're stable and then make sure there's a, a pathway forward. And it can be a long path, like especially if you're dealing with our legal team and you have to go to court and do all those things. Even with um, human trafficking, people who are being trafficked are quite often charged with crimes, prostitution or theft, things like that, things that they do to, literally to survive. This is the first year I think it's ever been done. But we were allowed to come in and do some training with the Omaha Police Department to train them on trauma brain because sometimes when they come out to interview, not to interview, if they're responding to a call and there's like an on-site interview of the person, like what happened, if you're in trauma brain, the way you respond is not seen as quote unquote normal. You may be quiet and reserved. You may just be frustrated and not answering any of the questions that the officer's asking. And that's problematic. So we were trying to train those officers on trauma-informed care and trauma brain and how that shows up visually. So we use videos to kind of help them see that. So our organization 
We do have all these like wraparound services for domestic violence and sexual assault. We also have a training and education department that goes out and tries to help people understand like what what it looks like from different people's experiences and perspectives. Omaha seems to be like an affluent, stable community where we profess a deep love for family and children and so on and so forth. And yet the picture you're describing is that we are not a community that is in any way immune from not only human trafficking, domestic violence, sexual assault and violence, but that the picture people may have in their minds of the kinds of people that are affected by this is wholly wrong. It's almost more likely that someone identifying as a man or a woman in a white-collar job in one of the very large professional buildings, maybe earning six figures, is just as likely to be someone suffering from domestic violence or sexual assault as anybody else. Are there other stereotypes that perhaps we as a community should be taking a hard look at? Um, I think the main stereotype is that it's women um, and it's women of color and of a certain uh, socioeconomic level factor. I think it's interesting that you say, like, this is a great city to live in. And I'm like, is it, though? <laughs> if you think about it, like, there, I think a couple years ago, Omaha was voted, like, the third best city in the U.S. to live in. And I think recently it was, like, number one. But it's based on raising a family, two parents, and then, like, this median income was, like, God knows, what, like, some six-figure, like, which is not everybody's reality. And so if you look at that, which is not real for every person in Omaha, then yeah, this is a great place to, to live and to thrive. But if you look at <laughs> other people, like the people who are always on the margins, if you are even like your two parents raising like two to three kids and you're doing it on a minimum wage job, like are you really thriving in Omaha? I don't think so. And then we, we quite often, just in general, people act like, oh, this Nebraska nice. I'm like, are we really nice? And there was an article that just came out last week where there was some report where Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska, is the most racist city in the U.S. Did you see that? I'm going to email it to you. <laughs> but, you know, it's like it's a great city for some people, and then it's hard for other people to thrive. And I think every city is like that. But I think the key is to just be honest about that and to figure out, like, how do you make things equitable or how do you at least give people access so they're not having to, like, struggle so hard just to make ends meet for basic needs stuff. Like, why do some kids have to go to school where, like, crazy shit's happening and, like, two kids got stabbed yesterday at Burke, right? Why, why is that? Like, oh, okay, it's a news story. And then other kids are at school where they are... I don't know, taking theater trips to go see the Cirque du Soleil. Like, it's a huge disparity in this city. It is a great city for the most part, but it has its challenges because we, like every other city, we forget about people if they don't have a platform. So that's it. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so September 2020, you say, yes, I will take the role of leading the Women's Center for Advancement. So why did you pursue that role? To be honest, I didn't. That was not how it happened. I was only supposed to be here for six months. I was going to be here for six months and go back to Florida because they needed an interim CEO at the time. So I do remember the time when I talked to the board chair. She was like, do you want to do this permanently? And I'm like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I guess it's... <laughs> like, we'll just do this for six months. It's a trial period. See what happens. Because I, in my foolish mind, <laughs> I thought whatever the issues are can be resolved in six months. And six months came and went like we barely scratched the surface. And I think what motivated me the most about coming back, there were three things that, that happened. One, my best friend is an openly gay man who years ago was sexually assaulted by a female she put something in his drink and then uh, had sex with him. He was very distraught. And so I'm like, I know you can go to this place. They help everybody. And he went to that place. And the person he spoke with laughed at him 
and said, are you sure that's what happened? Which if the roles were reversed and it was a woman, I don't think anyone would say, are you sure you were sexually assaulted? And he literally was like, "Uh, yeah, I'm a gay man. I'm not interested in women. And so the problem is you see people who are literally seeking help and they're automatically being judged, whether it's an unconscious, whatever it is, they're being judged and they are their experience is being questioned. So that was strike one. Second thing that happened is someone in my family was assaulted uh, and it was recorded. She called the police. And so the audio, there was a recording of everything that happened. And the abuser was saying, you made me do this. You made me hit the baby in the head with the gun. You made me do all these things. And I, I was in Florida and I sent her to the deputy. I'm like, go here. They can help you. They do this, this and this, whatever. She went there and they told her, it's too late. It's already 4.30. You have to come back tomorrow, which is some bullshit. If the organization closes at 5 and somebody gets there at 4.30, because that's how they have to manage when they don't drive, getting their kid, getting an Uber, getting there, 4.30, you close at 5. If they come at 4.59, you need to help them. And so that was another thing that pissed me off because this person, the abuser, ended up only serving six months in jail when he was supposed to serve a minimum of four years for having a weapon and some other things that occurred. So that was the second strike. <laughs> and the third thing was just in general, my sister is a survivor. She was married to a very abusive man. And just knowing her experience and what it took for her to survive and to get out of that and just knowing that. When she was trying to get help, organizations kept not showing up for her, not helping up. There was one time she told me that the police literally drove by her and she was, at the time she was pregnant and had like her two-year-old on her hip and her nose was busted. She was bleeding profusely and the cops literally drove right by her. So those, <laughs> I think those three things were the motivating factors because I do believe anybody in that situation should they should get support and they do need help. And we shouldn't pick and choose who gets help. Anybody needing help, it's already hard enough because you're enduring abuse or you're enduring a sexual assault. So it's already hard enough to go through that. But then to have like an organization who's supposed to help you put up barriers for you to access the services, I, I just, that just doesn't sit well with me. So you landed at a time when we were deep into the realization that the pandemic was going to be with us for a long time. So how did you approach being a leader of an organization and building a culture and, and taking it perhaps to a better vision that you had for an organization like the WCA? If I'm really being honest, I don't, I don't think I've had a lot of vision for the organization. I think this last two years has been a lot of um, cleaning up things that were kind of left behind, trying to refocus on clients and trying to shift the culture internally because there was a lot of turmoil with the organization. Right now, I think it's probably the healthiest it's been. It's like I think, you know, we work with you guys on some strategic plans. We're doing a, a DEI initiative with uh, Futures Without Violence um, and Vanessa Timmons and out of Oregon. Part of it is I think you, you have to have the right people in the organization and then you also have to have the right type of support for the people in the organization. Our staff are super, super dedicated to the clients, like to the point where they take on a lot of like vicarious trauma and it is overwhelming. So we've done a lot in the last year, this lot in 2022, especially we've done a lot to try to shift the culture and support staff more. We pay for our staff to have therapy. We recently did a survey to see, because not everybody likes therapy, right? There's other things. So we, we did a, a survey to see what else they would want to do for like a self-care that we could pay for. Um, and so we added a bunch of other things that um, the staff requested. We have a super solid team. They do a lot of heavy lifting every day, all the time. There's no science behind this. It's my own editorial. <laughs> but I think there's two types of people who are drawn to this work. It's either people who are survivors and who want to make sure that other people um, are able to like thrive and come out of their situation because they themselves know what that's like. Or it's people who are 
sort of like driven by trying to like change the world and make sure that everybody is okay. Ultimately, everybody in the organization is like that. We, they're always fighting for clients. And so coming into that, you just have to, because I'm like the new kid on the block. Nobody knows me. I just show up. And when I came in in the pandemic, nobody was there. <laughs> they were working remote. So I was at the office with like maybe five people. And at the time, I think we had 74 people on staff. But I only would see like the same five people because everybody was kind of working remote. Um, now, obviously, we're all back in the office. It's full swing. But it's mainly about shifting culture. And the staff that are there are so dedicated to the clients. They take care of the clients. And then as an organization, we have to make sure we're taking care of everybody on the staff. We, that's what we've been trying to do. The la Intentionally putting a lot of effort to it this last year specifically. You said of your time founding Impact One, I was really ambitious and naive. I believed I could do anything. As you shared with us that 10 years ago, you needed to take some time to sort of recover from some of those traumas. But here you are again, back as it were, at the coalface of making the world a, a better place in spite of the traumas that people are encountering. What is it about you that keeps pulling you to try to right the wrongs in the world. I think you just said it. I'm ambitious and I'm naive. <laughs> That's true. Like, seriously. I, I, like, if you read that statement to me, I'm like, did I say that yesterday? Like, I, I feel like that's very accurate. I don't know if ambitious is the right word. I would say hopeful. Like, I, I just I have a lot of hope for humanity, which is foolish <laughs> when you turn on the TV. I do feel like that ambitious is probably I'm hopeful. I think hopeful is probably a better word. I'm I'm hopeful for humanity. And then I am naive enough to think that all these things can change. Some of the stuff is so heavy and it's so hard. It's easy just to kind of say that's somebody else's problem and to walk away from it. Like I could get a job doing probably anything else that would be a lot easier. But like someone has to do it, I guess. And why not me? Why not the team that I'm working with? I've seen like, especially like our legal team, I've seen a lot of people do things. Not only that takes great strength as an individual to do it, but it takes wit to sort of trick other people into doing the right thing if it's a system you're working in or whatever. Um, we just started doing some stuff with Title IX. That ambitious and naive, I, I think... The naive part is true because I've never done this before. So I'm constantly learning and researching and trying to figure out how to make the organization sustainable, how to make people care. It's hard to make people care about something that's so tragic. Like if you're like, oh, hey, go, let's fund this after school program with these cute kids. Like you're not going to see cute kids with our organization, you'll see people with broken bones and battered faces, which is not appealing. It's hard to look at. I've noticed this. Like, there are certain people, like, we have some donors who 100% get it. Like, they are just, like, completely understand what it is. And they try to support in any way possible. And then we have other donors who they support, but then they ask questions about, well... Why don't they just, and I'm like, if it was that easy, no one would be in this situation. Like, who wants to be in this situation? You have to have that naivete to go out and to think that you can change it, but also to go out and just try to get support for something that's not as easy as a cute little kid, right? So I, I think me being naive and me being ambitious and hopeful works in my favor a lot. How have your experiences and your work changed you, shaped who you are today? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> there's lots of ways. I don't know. I feel like I've had such a unique life, like in general. I was talking to somebody like when the pandemic happened and uh, we were just having a conversation about how bizarre it is to live through a pandemic. And I was like, ah, uh, and I said it kind of flippantly. I'm like, yeah, if I die today, it's fine. Like I've lived such a great life. At 40 something, I was like, oh, I'm like, I, and I, I truly feel like I've lived the life of like a person that's like 100. Like all of the experiences I've had and the things that I've done and the things that I've seen and the places I've been. I think what the biggest change since maybe 
I don't know, like my time at Impact One to now, uh, the biggest change is probably uh, patience and diplomacy. I remember I was so mad when I was working at Impact One, seeing kids be murdered and like people. It's a news story. Then it's a prayer walk. And then people just like forget about what just happened. But there's a family that's still suffering. And so I, I think that I'm more patient. I used to go into meetings and I didn't mince words. I'm like, if I had something to say, I would say it. I would tell people like, put your money where your mouth is. Like, don't, we're not going to keep having meetings to talk about something that we know is an issue. And we know there's a way to kind of like solve that or curve that issue. I think I'm more diplomatic now. <laughs> Just because I'm older and a little more calm and wiser, maybe. I've realized more so now than ever that you can't do everything by yourself. Growing up where I grew up, you are cautious of people because sometimes people will extend a hand to help, but there's some ulterior motive or there's some string attached or there's something. And so I know I'm more cautious about that, but I've, I've learned over the years it takes a team of people and that sometimes you have to lead with trust. Even if there is that unknown, you kind of have to lead with trust. That's one thing that I, I think I've learned over the years. And one thing I learned very early on with Impact One is that nothing is guaranteed. Life is not guaranteed. Being there, I, I believe the youngest kid that died when I was there was 14. And just knowing that, you know, each day is a blessing. So for me, I learned from that experience that you shouldn't take anything for granted. I've learned to be patient with people and to understand that everybody kind of has their own path. And the way that you get to something is not necessarily the way that somebody else going through the same thing will get to it. So I don't know. I feel like I'm just older and wiser, a little more wrinkles. <laughs> what does being a single professional mom mean to you? It means that uh, your kid will graduate with like 10,000 volunteer hours. <laughs> So like, uh, no joke. Um, when I was working in nonprofit, she was just always with me. Like as a single parent, like your kid is either always with you or they're in daycare or some after school program. <laughs> when I was at the College of St. Mary, primarily, I remember her going with me to study groups and I'd be with the study group working and she'd be doing her homework. Whatever it was, like we were just always together. It's difficult and it's not really realistic for most people. Um, I think I was lucky because I only had one child to take care of. So it's a little bit easier to navigate. My cousin Monica, bless her heart, she would watch Erica every day from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock every Saturday for free. Like I didn't have to pay her because I'd be in class all day on Saturday. So she was always with me. I was always doing something. If I'm at a work event, quite often I'd have to take her with me to the work event. And she would have to help out, <laughs> like, you're here, you're going to volunteer. But it wasn't easy, but I do think that that's one of the reasons, like, she has a passion for, like, social justice, and she is in social work. Like, she works at Girls Inc. of Denver. Um, she went to school at Regis University and never left Denver. And even before that, she worked at the Denver Children's Home. Like, she's just constantly trying to, like, save the world and, and put some light out into the world. She runs like their college program, like helping the girls at Girls Inc. in Denver get to college. And I think her seeing the role that education played for my life, her being with me at school <laughs> and those study groups, and then her making her own path, I think it was helpful for her to see what I had to go through. Her experience was a little bit smoother. Like she didn't have a kid to take care of at the time. I had a seven-year-old. It was different. For me when I went to college but not only that I do the other thing I, I think with her she was able to see everything with impact one like the challenges that a lot of the kids and their family dynamics and and her life was was different it wasn't the greatest obviously because it single parent home is not the, always the greatest not the worst but I think she was able to see a lot of different things and so she appreciates certain things in life more I got lucky and she got lucky I would say we both got lucky because she didn't give me a lot of like headache and heartache uh, as a teenager <laughs> the jury's still out because she's a young adult now but 
she learned a lot and I learned a lot. I felt like we kind of grew up together. And then, you know, how life is, we ended up traveling together. So we've been to a lot of different countries and we've had a lot of different experiences. So I think she probably will end up being more well-rounded than I am just because she grew up in a different time. I am ambitious and naive and hopeful. She is naive as hell. Like, she believes that everybody is good. (laughs) There's like, the world is great. We're all going to survive. We're all going to thrive. But then she also grew up in an era of protest, right? And so she's also, like, down for the protest with whatever happens. Does this feel like, looking back on your life and, and also looking forward to the work to come, that you have actually achieved some success? Well, success is weird. Uh, people always talk about success. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I was successful at waking up and working out today. <laughs> but like, I do think that if you have kids, your job is to have a kid that doesn't add more stress and strain on humanity. For me, I just wanted to raise a human that was a good human. And I think I did okay with, with that. I think, how do you measure success? I'm thinking about what if I reframe the question to, do you feel like the world is a better place now? And do you feel like you've been able to contribute to that betterment? Uh, Sure. (laughs) Uh, I do think, so I think the world, I think every day we fight to make it a better place. Um, And, it's hard to gauge success because something that I would be super excited about and happy about, someone else may look at and like, uh. So it, you know, it's all relative. I do feel like if I'm doing work that is meaningful and impactful and it can potentially make somebody's life better, it makes me feel better <laughs> about maybe being able to shed some light in darkness because I, I do feel like everything's so heavy all the time. Quite often, if you're not experiencing something heavy and traumatic, it's easy to forget that there's heavy and traumatic out there that people are going through. And so for me, I think doing something meaningful is more important than anything. You can make a billion dollars doing anything, um, but usually those people making a billion dollars doing anything are doing harm, whether it's to the environment, like they're destroying the earth, (laughs) they're destroying lives, whatever it is. You know, we just need to think about, at the end of the day, some people are motivated by money. For me, I try to think about, like, you have this, like, one grain of spiritual sand, and where are you going to put it? So for me, if I do any good in the world, if my daughter does any good in the world, I think that's success. If anybody listening is either experiencing or knows someone who is experiencing any of the traumas that you've described in the show, whether it's domestic violence, sexual assault, trafficking, gang-related issues, what should they do? Whom should they contact? I can't speak for gang-related stuff. That's a different organization, but I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> um, if someone's experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault or human trafficking even or stalking, they can uh, contact the WCA. We're right on 38th and Harney, 3801 Harney. The phone number, we have a hotline. You can call 402-345-6555. That's the main number. The hotline is 402-345-7872. Our website is wcaomaha.org. The cool thing about the website is you can go on the website and send a message to our staff. And there's an exit button at the top of the website. So you can hit exit if the abuser comes into the room and it'll delete the history. So they won't know that you're on there. But we still will get the message and be able to assist We have a 24-hour hotline, so if you dial that number, the 7872, it'll take you into the hotline and you'll be able to get help any time of the day, seven days a week. Our primary focus, again, is domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. There are organizations like U-Turn that work with uh, kids who are dealing with issues of of gang gang involvement, but our our focus is really on stabilizing families and, and individuals who are survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. My 
guest today has been Jeanette Taylor, the president and CEO of the Women's Center for Advancement. Jeanette, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing some of your experiences and the work you've done. Sure, thank you for having me. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.